Welcome to the discussion Cybersecurity Risks in Information and Operational Technology, sponsored by Tenable. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Philip George, he's Director of Cybersecurity at the National Nuclear Security Administration, Chris Cleary is Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of the Navy, and Marty Edwards is Vice President for Operational Technology Security at Tenable. And I'm your host, Tom Temin. We're going to discuss this whole idea of the possible convergence, whether virtually or physically, of operational technology and information technology, the premise being that they both have cybersecurity issues because as history moves ahead, operational technology is increasingly IP, almost the same delivery mechanism as information technology. Long gone are the specialized protocols that used to be in manufacturing and factories. So why don't we start with Mr. George of NNSA. Give us a sense of what your infrastructure looks like and how you view it in terms of the information technology and the operational technology and what your general governance is for that. Are they separate? Are they moving together? Give us the picture here. Okay, thanks, Tom, uh, and thanks for having me on today. Um, at NSA, we have, um, I guess, a full spectrum of operational technology systems. Uh, we spent some time working in both internally with our policy and governance uh, organization, as well as with our partner organizations uh, within DOE and across our plants and labs to kind of bound the space. Um, when we looked at, at the operational technology um, environment in and of itself, we initially uh, thought that it would just contain the mission systems that are purpose-built and or support the mission of the NNSA as a whole. But we very rapidly realized that this also entails business automation and building automation systems, and as well as life safety uh, uh, systems that are utilized across our environment. And so the, the breadth and scope of, of the problem space expanded rapidly. And to be honest, it was a little bit overwhelming. Um, but uh, we hopefully, well, thankfully, were able to kind of uh, re-strategize and look at who the players were in each of these areas that as, a, as an OCIO shop, we normally did not play in. And what information and or subject matter expertise would we require in order to, one, understand and characterize these environments rapidly, Two, um, bring, find, develop a way to ingest, if not bring in these systems within our portfolio without increasing or adding undue risk to the operation. And three, adding one more sector of the triad. We're very familiar with confidentiality, integrity, and availability for systems. But when you're dealing with life safety and or emergency um, um, uh, control systems within a building or facility, safety is paramount. And so there's that fourth quadrant there that we have to consider when we're trying to protect these information systems and that we're not actually losing any, any ability to provide protection around. So in other words, in that environment, which can be very, very highly critical, especially when dealing with you know, nuclear weapons and so forth, the building itself becomes almost part of the matrix because the air conditioning and the environmental conditions really support the work being done by a lot of the machinery. That's correct. Um, you know, the environmental conditions are controlled, uh, as you would expect, in some of these production and fabrication environments. More importantly, uh, from a fire suppression system, for that matter, not just uh, from a, in a production environment, but just for the, our, our greatest asset, our people, the individuals running and operating these environments, they're few and far between. They're highly trained, highly specialized, and um, they're not easy to backfill. And so we want to make sure that the life safety systems that are supporting and protecting them are equally as resilient, available, and safe. And Chris Cleary of the Navy, let's turn to you. The Navy is equally complex. And I, I look at it in terms of the afloat assets, the shore assets, and then all of the big tail assets that are at the Pentagon and throughout really the country and they all have different sets of operational and informational technologies. Give us the view of how the Navy looks at this, and is there this convergence happening between OT and IT? Uh, is it virtual, is it real, is it physical, and how is the Navy generally approaching it all? Yeah, Tom, uh, first of all, thanks for having me again. It's, you know, it's a pleasure to be on here. I like sort of advocating for the Navy, what we're going on, and, and, and honestly enough, it's a very interesting time within the Navy uh, principally as we're continuing to respond to, as most people who listen to this phone call 
are probably familiar with is the, uh, the cyber readiness review that was conducted last year, which really led to the establishment of a newly empowered um, Don CIO office, to which point they, for the first time, um, created this position of the chief information security officer really at the secretariat level. So I'm the, I'm the first of its name, uh, and I'm hoping to, I hope that I, I leave this environment better than I found it. Um, that said, the, the ITOT convergence with inside the Navy is an amazing story. It's a journey that we're on right now. Uh, if you look at the aspirational goal for the Navy to get to 355 ships, uh, which covers a variety of classes, from aircraft carriers to submarines to amphibious ships to uh, auxiliary ships, and then you look at the way that we we maintain those ships and, and give those ships the, 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 the fuel, the food, the ammunition, the maintenance availabilities. Well, that's all handled on the, on the shore facility side, which currently right now encompasses 71 installations with somewhere north of 80,000 individual facilities, buildings, uh, with somewhere north of 300,000 industrial control systems supporting those things with probably 5X of that number different devices uh, that we have to figure out how to get our hands around to adequately you know, defend that infrastructure because that at the end of the day is one of our soft underbellies of the way that we do business as a Navy. So as the Don CIO offices continue to stand up, uh, we look at the breadth and scope of how we view this environment through, uh, actually it's the, moderniz the, 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 the digital modernization effort that uh, the Office of Secretary of Defense is on which sort of quantifies risk to the Department of Defense through about 10 different categories. Uh, industrial control systems is absolutely one of them. Critical technology is one of the 10 ways that we see risk being introduced to our mission as a Navy. That said, uh, the world of operational technology and the information technology associated with that world and the risks that can be introduced from the adversary or the risks associated that live in those systems holistically because of this new OT-IT convergence is something that we're just on the forefront of understanding. Um, and it's not just understanding the technical stuff, it's understanding the, the command relationships as it applies from the people tasked with being the, the security architects or the ones responsible for understanding risks to the Navy and bringing that, that level of awareness over to the operational technology community that are the ones uh, that, that, that build and maintain those systems. The interesting piece is those two worlds are, are just now coming together and they don't adequately speak each other's missions, mm -hmm. uh, which I like to say is sort of a, it's a clash of civilizations, but it's a friendly clash of civilizations because both sides acknowledge that there's things that need to be learned from the other. And, you know, the, the OT IT convergence is only going to get more and more intertwined. So it's definitely not going to be broken away as much as we would like to, in some instances, identify systems that may have connectivity to the internet and remove that because maybe they should have never existed in the first place. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that this ITOT convergence is really here to stay. Um, and it's going to, again, it's, it's a whole new mission area within our space uh, that we're kind of on the forefront of understanding. Yeah, it sounds like the people who weld have to get together with the people who solder, maybe is a way to put it. And so. that's, a good, that's a good way to say it, yeah. Let's turn to you, Marty Edwards of Tenable, and what do you see across government in your efforts to understand this idea of this convergence in OT and IT? Yeah, thank you, Tom, and, and thanks for having us on. Um, you know, I'm a little bit of a, a unicorn, I guess, in, in regards to Chris's explanation. The first 15 years of my career, I basically designed, built, and maintained those systems as an industrial control systems engineer. And then the last half of my career, I've spent on securing them. So uh, I've got a foot in each one of those worlds, and it is very rare to have people that are uh, cross-trained in that manner. You know, when you look at the U.S. government, um, all of these different departments and agencies have have just massive swaths of both information technology and operational technology, the SCADA systems, the distributed control systems, building management, the list goes on and on. And of course, we've kind of lumped all that together as operational technology. You know, there, there's several problems. I mean, a lot of the operational technologies uh, were purchased with lifespans of decades in mind, right? So um, although you get a new laptop every, every five years, you know, just because, um, these systems don't upgrade that fast. And, and as a consequence of that, they don't 
they don't have the latest patch or they don't have the latest and greatest software running on them, uh, which in, in some cases can make them more vulnerable. You know, in the aspect of convergence, I think that some of this convergence in, in this domain has happened almost organically or by osmosis. The, the devices are out there and they just happen to get connected to whatever networks are handy. And so for some of these installations, uh, it can be very difficult to get your arms around what assets are on the network, what risk do they pose to the network, and, and you really need to have special purpose-built technology enable to be able to do that. You know, so, um, you know, the, the convergence is real. Um, people talk about it as if it's a future thing. Uh, it is not. It is here. Uh, and there's a convergence in all of the, the, the different domains of people, process, or governance, and technology. So, you know, Chris talked about the people, you know, kind of convergence, and, and Philip talked about some of the convergence of the equipment in, in the NNSA. So, you know, I, I think that we have to address this as a community. It can't be done solely by the asset owner or the government department. It can't solely be done by the equipment manufacturer. It can't solely be done by a security vendor like Tenable. It has to be done as a community effort and we all have to contribute. All right, well, uh, it sounds like a pretty naughty problem. And uh, Philip, let's go back to you for a minute. How, what are some of the strategies that you are employing to do the risk assessment? And I guess it can get fairly technical because say you've got a new IT system and that's got the latest operating systems that are supported by the vendor. Some of the older systems or SCADA systems or non-IT types of systems that are now on the internet or connected may have an image based on an operating system that's old and no longer supported. This kind of thing can happen. So how do you go about figuring out what your cyber risks are across all those domains? So, uh, you know, our approach is uh, it's kind of a, a cross-cutting uh, approach, actually, where we're looking at each of the different or disparate mission spaces within our agency uh, because their application of operation technology varies, right? Um, and But the goal here is, is to obtain the appropriate context of how a given mission first leverages operational technology because the last thing we want to do as a cyber organization is introduce a requirement that doesn't take into account the impact to the ability to perform, perform and or deliver the mission requirement. We're, that's what we're here for. We're here to protect the mission. Um, and so we have, to, we have to partner. We have to partner with the mission owners and, and identify the one or two individuals who can properly characterize a given environment and provide the appropriate context for, from a, a, an availability, integrity, or confidentiality perspective. And then we can do that with what we do best, which is conduct an assessment, a risk assessment. Um, once that's said and done, and, and both parties have the ability to uh, evaluate what the, the, the desired controls are and the perceived impacts are going to be, then we, the next question is looking at what tools are out there to, to actually implement and enable the strategy. And, and the, the issue that we deal with there is, is, and as Marty's kind of alluded to, the problem's been here, but we really haven't been looking or paying attention to how to deal with it. And so some companies uh, in, in partnership, like public-private partnerships between us and them, are starting to move in the right direction, develop tooling and capability that cyber is, is accustomed to and familiar with, but is properly built to deal with legacy, if not antiquated systems, be it serial bus or IP based, uh, and enable uh, the ability for a given uh, operational technology or, or cyber shop to come in and gain visibility into what was previously an opaque environment. Um, so basically, so that's, you, look, you know, that's our approach. You look yeah, from the you look at the outcome desired based on the mission and go inward toward the technology rather than starting with the technology and moving outward, basically. Absolutely. The, the technology and, and how expansive uh, of an environment it tends to be deployed therein uh, can be a little bit too, it's a little overwhelming for that matter. And so we have to look at the, the components or the sections of that environment that are critical to the mission and start from there. Over time, we may be able to bound the whole space. But initially, doing something is better than nothing. There's definitely risk that has to be mitigated. There are definitely higher priority components within an OT environment than others. And so from a mission perspective, what are the areas that have the greatest consequence 
to the, the mission being either unable or able to execute. And we start from there. And we take that methodology and spread across and run in parallel across the mission space. Okay, we're going to ask the same question of Chris Cleary, but first we're going to take a small break here. My guests today are Philip George, Director of Cybersecurity at the National Nuclear Security Administration. Chris Cleary is the Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of the Navy, and Marty Edwards is Vice President for Operational Technology Security at Tenable. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This panel discussion is Cybersecurity Risks in Information and Operational Technology sponsored by Tenable here on Federal News Network. Whether you're a small business or a large government agency, you don't have enough resources to eliminate all cyber risk across your extended network, including modern assets like cloud and operational technologies. Tenable delivers the most comprehensive risk-based vulnerability management solution available to help you focus on the vulnerabilities that pose true risk and stop wasting time on the ones that don't. Visit Tenable.com to learn how Tenable can help you make the biggest impact on risk with the least amount of effort. That's Tenable.com, T-E-N-A-B-L-E.com. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Cybersecurity Risks in Information and Operational Technology, sponsored by Tenable here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Philip George, Director of Cybersecurity at the National Nuclear Security Administration. Chris Cleary is Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of the Navy. And Marty Edwards is Vice President for Operational Technology Security at Tenable. I'm your host, Tom Temin. And just before the break, we were, talk we were about to get to uh, Chris Cleary, and uh, give us the description of how, given what you've described as the complexities of the Navy's OT and IT, how you go about this whole risk assessment to figure out what it is you've got to protect and how you're going to protect it. But it all starts with that risk framework and the risk assessment. So tell us how they do it. Yeah, so I'm going to start with a real easy answer. And, and that's us leveraging the risk management framework, uh, which is, you know, the Navy has adopted and transitioning from DICAP over to RMF. Uh, which is the way we're really looking at managing and you know identifying and managing risk across the breadth and scope of again the department. That said, uh, again, not to imply that none of this stuff had been done in the past. Actually, you know, to the contrary, right? So, Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and Environments, um, Secretary Niemeyer, uh, had sort of released some guidance to uh, his organization through two major efforts. Um, the first was this concept of uh, unified facilities criteria. So, which again, begins to look at the cyber controls and cybersecurity controls um, for new construction processes, really leveraging the risk management framework to be the framework to sort of bound that, those projects by. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there's also a considered effort in the, in the Navy to uh, begin to limit the number of disparate control systems or vendors that we use uh, with various construction projects. You know, we all know, you know, a, a project is put together, it's put out for bid, everybody's going to, you know, has a new way to solve it. Um, and over the years, uh, just different projects were led by different contractors, which brought in different control systems. Um, and then it eventually get to the point where that becomes unwieldy. So as we move forward into new projects, to modernization projects, to rehabilitation projects, you know, how do we begin to, again, leverage the risk management framework to identify risk, so we're speaking risk consistently across the Department of the Navy through the, again, it's not always the easiest thing to do with the 640 some odd controls that RMF calls out. Uh, and then, hey, if we're gonna be looking at those 640 something controls, let's try and limit the number of things we have to apply these against. So we're not, you know, we don't have RMF packages just all over the place. We can begin to standardize um, on a certain subset of technologies that we'll invest in. Um, and, and to some degree double down on uh, moving in the future. And then that's a shore installation side. There's a whole similar story to the afloat environments and how we begin to standardize systems of the afloat environments uh, as they further and further work towards this IT, OT uh, convergence. Okay, and, and Marty, these two organizations, NNSA and the Navy, seem like they're pretty far down the curve on all of this. What do you see as the main challenge for agencies in general or on average that have the OT, IT maybe not so well converged, even if they're not converged, are they converged in their minds? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think that in general, um, Department of Defense and, and Navy certainly stands out as well as Department of Energy and NNSA are, are great examples. I mean, they've, they've admitted that they have a problem and that they need to address it. For so long, these uh, operational technology systems were, uh, they sat outside the accreditation boundary, which it meant that essentially there were no real cybersecurity rules that applied to them. They, they were exempted from some of the, the processes and the governance um, within the departments. So I think the first step is to, to recognize that this convergence has happened and is real. Uh, once you've done that, the, you know, putting the governance in place, such as Chris talked about, absolutely is you know, the, the, the necessary first step. You have to have the structure and the framework to be able to you know, go through this in a, in a good project management type of, of way. Um, but I don't think you can forget about the technology. You know, these are such, such complicated landscapes uh, with so many different interconnections, some known, some unknown, uh, that, you know, you really do need to have technology to help you very carefully uh, probe these systems gently using their own uh, native language, so to speak, these protocols that you talked about at the very opening. You know, these systems still use very esoteric and proprietary protocols. So, you know, a lot of the contemporary IT technology, you know, um, tools that we would use in the enterprise or on the commercial side of the house can cause these um, operational technologies and industrial technologies to, to fail. And of course, Philip um, underscored the importance that you know, we need to maintain that safety envelope, the reliability envelope of all of these devices. So you know, using a purpose-built technology that very carefully can enumerate uh, and report back those findings, I think is critical. And so I'd like to ask you, and starting again with Philip, what are some of the things that you actually find I mean, we know the cybersecurity risks to people operating IT systems like phishing. Well, you can't send a phony email to a SCADA system and have it answer. So are the risks inherent in those systems in some manner, or are, are, is the risk associated with their connection to the IT systems? So I think people might want to understand, you know, people that are like you down the road in this learning curve a little bit, what risks do you tend to see in the OT that, that might not be totally well, so, understandable uh, to the IT. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and you know, <laughs> we we've been we've seen some very eye-opening assessments and or you know initial um, outreach that you know pointed out some problems that we just weren't aware of because we didn't know. And and what I mean by that is is well, and it, it's a common phrase, but whether or not you're talking with a a functional or systems engineer or a cyber defender. A lot of the times these engineers are very focused on their subsystem within the larger machination itself. And they are unaware of how their output or where they are in the upstream process has an effect on the final project or product for that matter, sorry. Um, but more importantly, they also understand the various nuances of their system. They've gone through and they've significantly characterize uh, the, the device in and of itself, so they can tell you why it's performing one way or the other, but they can't necessarily tell you what the cause was because they're not looking for a logical actor and or factor affecting the output of the device. Um, we, we, have, we have also discovered that there is a level of connectivity that's more persistent than many of the users of the devices would like to think. Um, and because of that persistence, uh, you have a greater level of exposure uh, from, from targeting and or just surreptitious monitoring of the device itself. Uh, and lastly, a lot of this equipment is, is as, as uh, Chris has alluded to earlier, is, is legacy. It's, it, some of it's antiquated. Some of it is, is in a process of being uh, modernized and so forth. Uh, but regardless of that fact, it is dependent upon a consistent vendor and or um, a manufacturer update and or uh, um, uh, yeah, update process. And that process in and of itself may be a challenge to vet if not verify um, because it uses an esoteric protocol as Marty uh, talk, talked about earlier, or it uses a language that most of our tools cannot understand. And so 
we have to have a tighter coordination and, and, and collaboration between the systems and system engineers to, as we like to uh, say across the government space, if you see something, say something. If you see an anomaly or some sort of, of what, what looks to be benign process that is out of the norm, let somebody know. You don't have to run it to run it to ground, but you should bring it up to a security officer so that they may be able to at least look at the comprehensive picture and say, what all happened that led up to that anomaly? And begin to understand it beyond just the functional output of the device. And Chris, we won't use the phrase run it to the ground for the Navy and how they do those kinds of things, but uh, you mentioned earlier that there's thousands of SCADA systems or systems that control things on different facilities and on the ships and millions of devices. It sounds like almost an internet of things approach that you're dealing with. And so what's your, what have you found are the risks among all yes. this complexity? Running aground is words we choose to try to stay away from uh, in the Navy because we're afraid of when those things have happened, can it be, you know, look at the two collisions we had in the last couple of years. There was a concern we had to rule out uh, was it a cyber attack? Was there an industrial control? Was there a control system on the ship that was affected uh, that allowed that accident to happen? Um, I want to follow up on something that Philip said, though. And this is, you know, as I go on my own process of discovery, when you start talking about industrial control systems, is, you know, in the IT world, uh, we look at IT refresh rates, right? Typically, hardware is refreshed every three to five years. Software is refreshed a little more often. Applications are refreshed almost daily to some degree. But a lot of these industrial control systems were built to be around for decades. You know, some of these things we're not even thinking about doing new things with for another 10 years because they're, you know, we look at the same thing with ships. I mean, when you put a lot of the, you know, the, the major control systems, the, the, the engineering plants, the way they push around electricity, uh, the major functions, those things are there for, you know, the life of the ship and may or may not be overly modified uh, through the life of the ship, particularly older ones, which we're just going to get a new one. Um, but the, the, the thing that I think is more interesting in this whole discussion is, you know, we try and put our hands around the breadth and scope of, you know, information technology security or industrial control system security. You know, I, I, I have the benefit of coming from other communities. I used to be a military planner. I used to run offensive cyber operations. I've been in the commercial world as both a vendor and a uh, 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 working for large, you know, uh, integrators. It's really what the bad guy is trying to do to your system because, you know, I concede the fact that when we talk about cybersecurity risks to operational technologies, most instances, there's very few things that a cyber operator can do that, you know, will take down the power grid for a year, right? Everybody acknowledges that's a really heavy lift. But you saw the attack in Georgia, in Georgia on their power thing that, that shut off, you know, tripped a couple breakers and people went without power for a couple hours. Now, people might say, oh, well, look, they went through all that time, money, and effort to trip a couple breakers that required a guy to get in a truck, and he just drove out there and reset the breaker, and everybody had their power back. But nobody's really addressing what happened in those three hours of darkness, right? It's not that I need to take down your industrial control systems. I may just need to deliver an effect that allows me, the adversary, to operate just for a few minutes or a few hours. I don't need you to be in the dark forever because <clears throat> the sun comes up the next day. So you'll have light. Uh, but maybe it's just that one thing I need to affect that will have downstream effects that will prevent the Navy from executing a mission, maybe not permanently, for maybe just long enough for the adversary to be successful in what they're trying to do. So those are the things that, that keep me up at night. It's not that I'm necessarily concerned about uh, the Navy being ground to a halt because some of a, some attack system, an industrial control system. But I am concerned that they could get into our, you know, our OODA loop and the way that we do business and just slow us down enough that where then they can be effective on what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and Marty, this uh, bridging of the information technology and the traditional types of technologies or the legacy types of OT technologies kind of reminds me of someone that may have an Alexa in the kitchen and then wonder why their clock radio doesn't answer when they talk to it, you know, upstairs in the bedroom because uh, it was a you know 15 year old device what are technological or operational approaches to assessing it and ot such that you get a cogent picture of what your risks are yeah it's a it's a great question you know and uh, you know you opened this with kind of the phishing attack uh, example and i th i think there's still uh, that's still one of the primary entry vectors into IT or OT is, is to come in through the people, right? So phishing, 
um, you know, those those types of, of things are still very uh, uh, important and, and should be c- uh, considered in a, in a good security uh, posture or plan. You know, when you look at the technology and you look at these converged systems, you know, I think that, uh, for example, um, Philip talked about, you know, some of these systems being uh, legacy, the manufacturers may not long, no longer be in, in, even in business, right? So how do you get a per- firmware patch for something that isn't actually manufactured anymore? You know, I, I hear a lot of uh, our customers or, or different people I talk to say, well, then what, what good is it to, you know, put some type of real-time information gathering system or instrumentation on those systems to tell you what those vulnerabilities are? You know, and my um, argument back is that you still want to know, even if there are limited um, remediation um, things that you can do to fix it, you still want to know because you can put additional uh, perimeter protection around that or choose to disconnect in some ways or choose to put additional sort of procedural controls around the system. So, you know, where, where, where we come from it is we want, we want to help people understand what their cyber exposure is. So what are all these different devices, regardless of if they're IT devices or OT devices or even mobile or container-based devices, right? We want people to understand what all the weaknesses are that are inherent in those the vulnerabilities that have been discovered that are inside of those devices and give them a method to prioritize that so that they can ingest that into their risk assessment process. Once you have that, then like Philip mentioned earlier, you know, you can kind of go through and, and prioritize what are your most critical systems, what are the most critical devices within those systems, and then apply the remediation measures, you know, respectively. You know, we can't boil the ocean, so to speak. Um, we have to take a, you know, a concentrated or tailored approach because, you know, even for departments as big as the Department of the Navy, Chris will attest that cybersecurity budgets are finite, right? I mean, there isn't an infinite number of resources that we can apply here. And Chris, you wanted to uh, respond. Yeah, actually, I want to just piggyback uh, on what Marty said. You know, um, the one of the unique things about the military is uh, we always love to know what's going on. We are, we, we, we can't get enough, right? You come into all our operating centers and you see, you know, the big board, right? We all got our big boards. So, you know, situation awareness for us is, is key. It's, as a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's one of the, the fundamental things that we try to get, understand whether we're going to take action on that information or not. So one of the unique differences to the, to the military side of the house, which is probably doesn't always exist in the commercial side of the house because, you know, the CEO of, uh, you know, a commercial company is not sitting in an operation center somewhere you know, looking at the big board with the breadth and scope of everything that is going on, going on. It's just the opposite in our world. Um, we cannot get enough of that information. So some of the reasons that we would might want to acquire a, a piece of technology for, you know, to understand our cyber exposure goes beyond just maybe always acting on that information, but we always have to understand where our risks and our vulnerabilities are so we can be positioned to respond. I may never have an ability to, uh, using an, an IT system or maybe a remote capability to secure that piece of device. Maybe I just have a set of guy next to it because I know the bad guy can flip the breaker and again, just gonna, you're just gonna flip it right back on when he does that. Um, so to have that level sure. of awareness, uh, but it's unique in the, in the DOD. So, and some of those things would go beyond, you know, a security reason to buy that tool. Uh, it's just, a, it's gonna help. It's, it's the same reason they buy the big TV monitors for their operation centers. It's just a way to display information so commanders can take action on it. Okay, on that note, we'll take a short break. My guests today are Philip George, Director of Cybersecurity at the National Nuclear Security Administration. Chris Cleary is the Chief Information Security Officer for the Department of the Navy. And Marty Edwards is the Vice President for Operational Technology Security at Tenable. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This panel discussion is Cybersecurity Risks in Information and Operational Technology, sponsored by Tenable here on Federal News Network.
Whether you're a small business or a large government agency, you don't have enough resources to eliminate all cyber risk across your extended network, including modern assets like cloud and operational technologies. Tenable delivers the most comprehensive risk-based vulnerability management solution available to help you focus on the vulnerabilities that pose true risk and stop wasting time on the ones that don't. Visit Tenable.com to learn how Tenable can help you make the biggest impact on risk with the least amount of effort. That's Tenable.com. T-E-N-A-B-L-E.com. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Cybersecurity Risks in Information and Operational Technology, sponsored by Tenable here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Marty Edwards, Vice President for Operational Technology Security at Tenable. Chris Cleary is the Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of the Navy. And Philip George is Director of the Cybersecurity at the National Nuclear Security Administration. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And Marty, why don't we start this segment with you? We heard uh, Chris describe what is a friendly, but nevertheless real clash of civilizations when the OT and IT worlds come together. So you've got organizational uh, governance and human capital issues. What do you see as good approaches to kind of getting these two worlds, the welders and the solderers together in some way they can work together and what does good governance look like? Yeah, it's, it's, certainly, a, it's certainly a real issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, I'm, I think I can say that we're making progress there. I mean, I come from the hardcore operational technology engineer wearing a hard hat, steel-toed boots, fire-resistant coveralls. You know, I look a lot different than the, you know, IT information security professional that looks like I'm dressed right now, you know, sitting behind a keyboard um, in one of those operations centers. So each, each one of these um, sort of people have very, very different sort of, um, it's not really work ethic, but the, the, the environment that they work in, uh, the way they think about problems is different, right? First and foremost, the OT people are going to uh, want to say that safety is, is, a, is a critical issue. You never step into an operational plant without taking a five-minute safety video and a briefing on how to react if some emergency happens. You know, whereas most of the time, information security people work in an office environment, right? Um, I've seen companies and I've seen U.S. government departments and agencies, you know, essentially push these people together, you know, so spend a walk, walk a mile in another man's shoes, you know, so take an information security person and uh, actually detail them or assign them to a operational technology type of unit to, to spend some time there to learn the language and to learn the sort of different operating procedures and then do vice versa, take the operational technology people and make them sit at a help desk for a while and deal with, you know, the questions that they get. At the end of the day, I think that they will find that they're very synergistic or complementary, right? So the OT people will start to realize that if I improve the security of this system, in a way that doesn't affect the reliability of this system, it makes it more safe, right? So it actually helps them achieve their objectives. And vice versa, the information security people will uh, come to the, the realization that if they can implement security in a way that doesn't affect you know, their information uh, requirements, then, then they get a better visibility into the, into the overall picture. So you know, it's hard. They're different people. They're different organizations. There's uh, sort of management leadership chain issues that have to be resolved. Uh, and ultimately, you'll still have specialists, right? You're still going to have the InfoSec people. You're still going to have the OT people. We're not trying to you know, combine them and, and eliminate two positions and make one. You still need those people, but they need to work together more often. And Philip George, how have you handled this at the NNSA and what are some of the resulting human capital development initiatives that might result? So at NNSA, we've, we have worked very hard to avoid um, a couple of pitfalls that some organizations might encounter at the onset, and that's the battle for ownership or absolute ownership. Um, a lot of these operational technology environments have been within mission space for a considerable amount of time. Um, and with that comes a, a level of, of, of ownership and, and a point of pride for that matter. Nobody understands this system better than we do. Um, and for a, a fledgling operational technology assurance effort, the first thing you want to do is to speak towards your strengths. You're not there to tell them what they've done wrong. 
you're there to be the cyber subject matter expert and bringing a level of, 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 of rigor and method to an environment that may be lacking thereof, but also not be punitive. So forging relationships, showing how you bring value to the environment to enable them to keep performing their mission helps to gain support within the, the operational technology space in and of itself. You can lose significant time and effort by trying to obtain absolute control while taking on the contrary, allowing the only organization to work and speak towards their strengths and, and the, uh, the, the cyber and defender organization to do the same brings people together. And to Marty's point, you are dealing with the significant difference in paradigms as well, too. Uh, you, most of your cyber defenders are accustomed to uh, distance management and or uh, uh, engagement, not necessarily hands-on, face-to-face, definitely not from an operational technology or production perspective, uh, being exposed to what can be a very disruptive, uh, if not, you know, loud and, and, and dangerous environment. And so there's, there's a significant paradigm shift when it comes to interfacing with operational technology engineers um, and, and, and administrators that have to be overcome. Um, so you're going to need strong thought leaders uh, who, who begin to build that bridge and develop the vernacular and, and tactical objectives. We're just going to characterize subsystem A and take one step at a time um, instead of focusing on trying to characterize a larger system, which may not be the focus for either side. Um, lastly, making sure you have multidisciplinary teams. Um, uh, Chris talked about uh, having a, a, a background of offensive uh, cyber skills. And offensive cyber is a totally different perspective than that of, of defensive cyber because you are just looking for that one inroad to have that one effect to achieve that one goal. And so your your, 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 your uh, uh, strategizing and your uh, deployment and your execution can be very finite and tactical, whereas from a defender perspective, you take a more comprehensive and, and compliance approach to an environment, which means you tend to water down some of your protection mechanisms. Um, but that's, you know, that is our approach here to make sure that we're covering both sides of the power struggle and, and, and garnering support, <laughs> you know, and, and building relationships between the missions and the service providers for that matter. And Chris, in the Navy, you also have uniforms and civilians, which is sometimes great cooperation, sometimes there's a little bit of tension there. So describe your, your ways of bridging those OT and IT worlds, and can contractors have some help in that particular effort? Yeah, so you, I, actually, you threw me a little bit of a softball because uh, so there's there's three different worlds that that we sort of have to interact with, right? So on the shore facility side, um, you know, it's a lot of civilians, it's a lot of contractor support. So when you look for these skill sets, you can it can be a requirement of the contract that says, hey, you need to come to the table with guys that speak this language. Um, for the civilian workforce, they don't always necessarily have it, so there's a requirement to train people on how to do this. But in the military, one of the, one of the more encouraging things, and uh, I have a peer, Josh Ryder, who uh, works over in N2N6, and his, his, he's kind of got the rose pinned to his chest for uh, workforce development around the cyber stuff. But the good news is when it comes to a lot of the ratings that we have, and those are the enlisted ratings, the guys that do the work, um, one of the uniquenesses of the Navy is almost everybody has a rating or a skill set, right? There's, there's, there's engineers, there's electricians, there's mess cooks, there's carpenters, there's equipment operators. So the Navy is uniquely positioned to say that, hey, your whole career path is going to be about working on a gas turbine engine. Well, as, as that career path advances over time, more fundamental skills are brought into the training in the beginning of it to say, well, hey, now that gas turbine engine has these uh, information technology systems, and well, you have to know just as much about that as you know about the engine itself. So the good news is over a period of time, culturally, this will continue to be brought into the, into the Navy, um, whether we go and contract for it, which again, then the, the, the defense industrial base has a requirement to train their people if they wanna be more competitive on contracts that the Navy's gonna solicit to do this kind of work. Um, and then we also have a requirement of, you know, a lot of these guys acknowledging that, you know, it's the amount of people that you bring into the Navy on every given day, not all of them stay for 20 year careers, so you're going to lose these people, but you lose them back into the worlds that they're probably going to go work for that contract company 
on that same piece of equipment in that same facility. So, so it's really the betterment of, of, of the, you know, I started my career in the Navy as a avionics electronic technician. You know, I turned wrenches on F-18s and then I had an understanding for uh, the way electronic systems worked, which kind of led into the, this whole cyber thing, which I don't, I'm still scratching my head on how I fully got here. Um, but that's our culture. So, so as right now, it might seem a bit tenuous and there's a clash of civilizations and there's contractors dealing with military, dealing with everybody else. But over a period of time, the unique thing about the military is once we get on a vision and a path, it's the perpetual motion machine. We will create a pipeline that trains people, we'll introduce different kinds of, 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 of information into that training pipeline, and it will just continue to, to, to mature over time. That won't happen tomorrow. It won't happen, but it will, it will happen. This is the direction we acknowledge this is where we need to go. We acknowledge it's a brave new world with new uh, interdependencies. And that's the mission that we've chosen to accept and we will grow and develop over time. And a final question, can the processes of digital modernization, which is a big IT initiative for several administrations now and during the current pandemic crisis, we've seen a renewed cry for you know, more money for digital modernization for many, many purposes across the federal government. Almost no agency has been untouched in that sense. Can the processes and the thinking of digital modernization, can that bridge over to the OT world where you have a whole different set of vendors, even a whole different set of resellers and contracting rhythms? Can, can the bridging happen in the modernization era? And uh, Philip will ask you first. You know, I think it can. It's 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 a function of whether or not the 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 requisite capital is there to actually invest and modernize your environment. Um, and and there are some mission requirements that may disallow modernization because the the new uh, uh, component device, um, uh, lathe or crane for that matter, introduces technology and or vulnerabilities that cannot adequately be accepted and or mitigated. And so sometimes dealing with and or continuing to manage legacy or antiquated hardware is the best practice. Sometimes there's not even a cyber solution for some problems. It comes from understanding the physical rel uh, reliances on the system and managing that, I mean, whether or not it's access to a given piece of fuel or uh, constraining the amount of, of input into the system and just having a cyber monitoring capability on the gauge that is controlling that action. It, it really boils back to knowing your enterprise and your mission in and of itself. You can't modernize everything, but for the components that you can, your, your cyber and your, your OT assurance uh, offices need to be a part of that acquisition. They need to be able to inform the mission owners as to whether or not that hardware component that's being put into the new platform is something that can be properly protected or will create undue risk. And so it's really modernizing and improving your organization's processes across the board versus just looking at it as a, you have old piece of technology or, or a antiquated operating system, we need to replace it. The new may, may be no better than what you currently have in the old. Chris, what about, uh, what's your view? So for, you know, I'll, I'll parrot almost everything Philip said. That was a great answer. Um, you know, the digital modernization is kind of the core of where the Navy is right now. So if you look at the digital modernization strategy being pushed down by the Office of Secretary Dense, Mr. Dana Deasy, um, we are full adopters of that. Within that strategy, of course, the further you get down into it, you run up into instances like we're talking now with the IT-OT convergence. Um, you know, one of the things that I think that's really bringing that to light, if you look at the current situation that we're living in right now, this dependency that we have now on information systems, knowing that for these information systems to really operate, there's an operational technology that's allowing it to, the electricity that's coming to my home right now is OT, which is allowing me to even work from home. And so I have critical dependencies on things that I have no control over whatsoever um, in my house. And as digital modernization as a, as a concept is continue to unfold, it, it further brings light to the thing that the Navy needs to do its job, that it doesn't always necessarily have control over. Um, there are certain things that we create, you know, ships at sea are their own little ecosystems. Uh, and, and we're, you know, we continue to learn as we go. 
And Marty, we'll give you the last word here uh, in the minute we have left. There, what Chris just mentioned was really the synergy between the OT and the IT and not necessarily the separation, since, as he mentioned, computers do run on technology, so on, uh, on electricity. So uh, is your view that these can be bridged in a way that uh, everybody's harmonized and we can get the best security across the board? Yeah, and, and I'm going to take a little different tactic. I actually think that the U.S. federal government is in a pretty unique position because they have such tremendous buying power that, you know, we can leverage procurement methodologies and contract methodologies to ensure that the security requirements are baked into these, you know, um, up front. So back when I was with the Department of Homeland Security, we wrote a document that was called uh, procurement language for industrial control systems. And so we can actually go in and specify what degree of security that these vendors should be providing or must provide prior to it being um, purchased and installed in these installations. And I think if you look at that kind of approach, it has spin-off effects into the commercial world as well. So I think it's a win-win. All right. I wish we could go on for another hour. So many more questions, but you guys have done a great job answering the fundamentals here. I'd like to thank today's guest. Philip George is Director of Cybersecurity at the National Nuclear Security Administration. Chris Cleary is the Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of the Navy. And Marty Edwards is Vice President for Operational Technology Security at Tenable. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. You've been listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, go to federalnewsnetwork.com and search Tenable. T-E-N-A-B-L-E. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Cybersecurity Risks in Information and Operational Technology, sponsored by Tenable on Federal News Network. Whether you're a small business or a large government agency, you don't have enough resources to eliminate all cyber risk across your extended network, including modern assets like cloud and operational technologies. Tenable delivers the most comprehensive risk-based vulnerability management solution available to help you focus on the vulnerabilities that pose true risk and stop wasting time on the ones that don't. Visit Tenable.com to learn how Tenable can help you make the biggest impact on risk with the least amount of effort. That's Tenable.com. T-E-N-A-B-L-E.com.